0: oftentimes enlightening and informative and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is world-renowned theologian, Rowan Williams. He became Archbishop of Canterbury in late 2002 with 10 years experience as a diocesan bishop and three as a primate in the Anglican Communion. As Archbishop, his main responsibilities were pastoral, whether leading his own Diocese of Canterbury and the Church of England or guiding the Anglican Communion worldwide. He is acknowledged internationally as an outstanding theological writer and teacher, as well as an accomplished poet and translator. His interests include music, fiction, and languages. His newest book is Candles in the Dark, Faith, Hope, and Love in a Time of Pandemic. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Rowan Williams. Rowan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be with you. It's a great honor. You're the first uh, Archbishop of Canterbury I've had on this uh, on the podcast. I'm sure... Um, well, there are not a lot of you. It's a pretty, it's a, it's a pretty, oh, it's a select club, isn't it? Yes, yes. But you'll survive it. <laughs> I'm curious. Is it like? It's interesting. In the United States, you find presidents wind up becoming friends, even across parties. Former presidents, because nobody's kind of done what they've done. Is there mm-hmm. a similar dynamic as being a prelate of of the church? You know, do you do you find the that former mm-hmm. archbishops are few of the only people that understand what you've gone through?
1: There's a lot of that, really. Yes, yes. You you need to be able to share with some people that sense of um, isolation, I guess, that, that can come with being in a really focal point in an organization. Um, it's occasionally something I even used to talk to Pope Benedict about. Really? What, what mm. were those conversations like? Well, at least once a year, we'd have a meal together in Rome and uh, just talk one-to-one. And we talked about theology, we talked about the church, and we talked a bit about our problems and about the intractable people we had to live with.
0: <laughs> it's interesting, because both of you were trained academic theologians that wound up spending their time in the in the practical hmm. kind of sturm and drang and normal yeah, stuff of yeah. the church. I mean, was that a thing you connected over the two of you?
1: Very much so, I think, yes. Um... The difficulties of that, you know, how do you communicate the the kind of theological world you're used to, but also I think the the pluses of it, that you you did have some perspective on contemporary questions, which meant that you didn't think that certain problems were just invented yesterday, and that there might be something to learn from looking at the history.
0: Was he, it's interesting, because I, you know, he seems like a very serious person, and yet, you know, I watched the Two Popes film, and in that oh, film... Yes. Was a, I love Brilliant film. He, film.
1: he came off as as, as funny. Was was yep. he funny in your experience? He had a very subdued sense of humor, but it was quite sharp. And I thought the film was a very, very good portrayal of him, actually. I, I wonder when you
0: were serving as a bishop and serving in clerical roles, I mean, are there times when you just want to curl up with, you know, Karl Barth or Hegel or something and just get away from it all?
1: <laughs> Sounds a bit sad, doesn't it, but like that. But... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I always needed to make a bit of time for that. So when I was archbishop, I, I usually accepted invitations, for example, to examine people's doctoral theses, just to keep me a bit abreast of things. So maybe once or twice a year, I'd do that. And I did have a, a sabbatical in 2007, I think it was, and wrote a book about Dostoevsky. Very relaxing. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what most people think of <laughs> as
0: relaxing. Dostoevsky. Absolutely. Absolutely yes. <laughs> Very normal. Very normal. Um, Run-of-the-mill kind of an experience. You've written a new book, um, Candles in the Dark, Faith, Hope, and Love in a Time of Pandemic. Hmm. And you begin the book, uh, it's really interesting, you talk about the Annunciation. Hmm. And I love this, you talk about this small change in Mary's biology that was Hmm. making space for a cosmos-shattering and altering reality. And you say this, you say, as we contemplate the coming months not knowing we, we can breathe again. It's worth thinking about how already the foundations have been laid for whatever new opportunities God has for us mm-hmm. on the mm-hmm. far mm-hmm. side of the crisis. Yeah. yeah, When you look around with the eyes of, well, the eyes of just human being, but also the eyes of faith, what foundations
1: are, are you seeing emerge? The two obvious things, I think, which I've written a bit about in the book. One is simply people being having their noses rubbed in what really matters to them. What actually does take priority in their lives? Is it just earning a living? That's a problem, goodness knows, for lots of people. But it's also, I want to be with my, my mother who's dying in hospital. I want to be um, alongside my son whose wife is having a baby. I want I want contact. I want that immediate loving assurance of presence. And that really matters. That So that's one thing. And the other, I guess, is just foregrounding, what's often in the background, the sense of our dependence on lots of people's completely unspectacular work day by day, the just turning up thing. and there's a, a bit in the book about that as well. And if we if we remember when things have got a bit more normal again, if we remember that that's something we we learned to look at, then I think we'll have gained a lot because the things we take for granted and the people we take for granted, the people whose daily risks and efforts we take for granted and don't really notice, we've started noticing them more. And it would be a bit of a tragedy if we stopped noticing them after this. You you say, in the chapter called Fragile Trust,
0: in the ellipsis you say, we trust those who are inspired by a vision of something bigger than themselves, but also who also recognize the ever-present possibility of failing and messing things up. And as I was reading that, I was thinking about I, I think things like this have happened in the UK. I mean, certainly they've happened in the United States, where we hear uh, government officials who set up restrictions for COVID nineteen and then are caught vacationing and, and, and seemingly kind of carefree. And people, people, mm-hmm. th- there's a, there's a deep resentment that tends yeah. to well up in people that hey, I, we're not in this together. I mean, I wonder
1: yeah. the significance of solidarity. Right? It's it's huge. In, in, I think it's, I think this. it's enormous. Yes, I think it's enormous. And you're absolutely right. It is these stories, they may not be very widespread, but they certainly get the headlines. Stories about people in prominent positions who've taken reckless risks, who've simply said the rules are not for me. This has a, a really toxic effect because people say, well, two things. If they don't bother, why should I bother? But much more deeply and worryingly, can I trust anything they say about anything? And we're already in a bit of a downward spin, spin about um, trusting political leaders in the Western world and elsewhere. And I don't really like the thought of anything that drives that deeper and faster. And and
0: we need to have a trust, I guess, in pandemics with each other, because the only way that, that the thing will, the only way will stem the tide, right, is mm. if we're all in it together,
1: right? Um, that's right. Yes. And, and recognizing that, you know, my safety is your safety, yours is mine. And it's not just being um, altruistic, though that's in it. It's also being in the fullest sense, reasonable, because reason is something we share. We reason together, we work things out together. And working out how to keep one another safe, yeah, that's, that's part of a reasonable life that we live together. And I think that's a kind of faint glimmer of what I as a Christian see going on in, in the New Testament. Um, when St. Paul says, if one part of the body suffers, it's everybody's problem. And when I have a cold, I don't just say, my nose has a cold. I have a cold, and that affects all kinds of things about me. So if that's the way community, human community works at its fullest, that we're all kind of literally picking up from each other, either positive or negative things, then the pandemic opportunity, the pandemic experience, is certainly one of the things that intensifies that recognition for us.
0: That's interesting you say something there. You said that when I have a cold, I say my nose doesn't have a cold. Mm -hmm. I wonder, do you think we often refer to things as, you know, my body, right? Or we talk about our bodies. Is there something anthropologically off or is there something about the human condition that gets misunderstood if we start thinking in terms of our our bodies as something that we, like, walk around in and pilot, like like a spaceship or something? I
1: think there's something very wrong. Um, I've always really been sympathetic to that strand in theological history, which says, you know, the soul is not some extra thing injected into the body. It's it's whatever gives the body meaning and substance, shape and and continuity. And it's not, you, you can't extract it. You can't have it out like an appendix or a, a pair of tonsils, you know. So there's a sense in which I don't have a body. I am my body. And even more than that, my body doesn't just stop where, where the skin stops, you know, because I'm connected invisibly to all sorts of things by bodily means. And I'm connected just with the genetic inheritance I have from others. I'm connected with my parents and my children. I'm connected by all kinds of things like the food I eat with production systems and ecologies elsewhere in the world, elsewhere in the country. So I think one of the things that are really, what should I say, really reasonable faith involves is recognizing that my body is giving and receiving is always part of a flow of life, not just um, a kind of six foot, 12 stone doll that um, I happen to own and put away in a cupboard when I need to. Yeah. It's interesting that this is um, in the Christian tradition,
0: often ideas like this, that sort of demean the body or something we've Mm -hmm. called Heresies, um, mm, which have. is kind of a politically incorrect <laughs> term to use right now. Mm. But you spent a good chunk of time writing about maybe one of the most famous heretics. You wrote a beautiful book on Arius. Oh. There's this great thinker of the 4th century who mm. was mm. who did battle with Athanasius. I mean, yeah. What inspired you to spend time with someone that who was not a victor in the 4th century mm. theological mm. debates? And, and I wonder how... Mm. Um, do you see heresies floating around today that, that that challenge the kind of complete
1: story of the church? Oh, sure, yes. But I suppose what what prompted me was really the sense that it, it takes it takes a very considerable mind to get a whole religious community to think through what it's saying and make some changes. And Arius is one of those rare people who was able to listen to and attend to the religious language of the communities of his day and say, you know, this doesn't hang together. And here's a solution, and there's a moment where everybody steps back and says, "Oh," and then people say, "Well, no, that's not a solution. That won't work." And then they say, "So what will?" And they sit down and they they try to work at it. And the interest of somebody like that, who, as you say, is is a really substantial thinker, is he has the courage and the honesty to say, "I don't think this will do," and even if his solution is a shortcut in some ways. At least he makes other people think, and that I think is one of the things that heresy, however we define it, does. And I can I can look back, let's say, on the um, on the history of philosophy and theology in the twentieth century, and say there are figures with whom I disagree profoundly, but I'm very glad they were there because they made us ask certain questions. So I I have profound disagreements with, let's say, the philosophy of Bertrand Russell or Freddie Ayer, but they. You need to read them because they spotted the gaps. They spotted the unfinished business, and so they they sort of lobbed the ball back over the net and said, "Well, you tell me what we ought to say then." And that's hard work and is necessary work. Is there a sense in which the heresy the, the 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 heresy is
0: kind of the kind of the voice of either or, and the orthodoxy, what Christians call it, is generally
1: the both and voice that's trying to hold the tensions. Yeah, I I think the really. The really interesting question about any heresy is, what does it leave out? And what we call orthodoxy in the church has always been the attempt to keep as much as possible in play. So look at the theological controversies in the early church about whether we call Jesus divine or not. Arius had a clear answer and it was, no, he's not divine. He's, he's very, 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 very significant and belongs to a high level of spiritual being, but he's not divine. And after a few decades, the church was able to say, you know, that's not quite enough. If we go down that route, there are things we can't say about Jesus, which we really need to say if we're Christians at all. If we're going to make sense of the worship we give, the prayer we pray, we need to say more. And how to say more? Well, you know, I'll get back to you on that. Say the fathers of the fourth century, we've got to go and do some work. But we know that's got to come in somewhere. So yes, I think it's right that there is an element of of both and in this, and I think in in the book there's um, there's one reflection on how somehow you've got to look forward to that state beyond mere standoff and zero sum games. I was thinking about the Reformation and um, the way in which just occasionally you have a figure like Thomas More, who you know he dies for a very very particular vision of Catholicism, but even he, as he's going to his death, says he hopes he'll meet his his judges in heaven. In other words, somewhere not exactly over the rainbow but somewhere over the horizon is the possibility of a a holding together of what looks contradictory and that's not a kind of sentimental hope that it'll all come out in the wash it's a it's a kind of comprehensive robust tough vision which says there's there's life here on both sides of this controversy there's faith there's truth there's love somewhere they've got to find a home together you say something
0: in the book in a, in a, in a chapter on Ascension I remember I think it was uh, there's a theologian Douglas Farrow who wrote a great book on the Ascension and, That's right yes yes he, he talks about the presence of Christ's absence um, mm-hmm. and I was and feeling that the way we feel Christ's presence is is, is through his absence um, mm-hmm. and you, you say in the book um, we're privileged at times to see in the life of the church someone who embodies this it may be a contemplative monk or nun it may be an unknown layperson or a child at prayer mm-hmm. or a whole community. Of worshipers caught up together in quiet, loving attention as they hear words or music that opens, that, that open a heaven to them. Yeah. But when this happens, what we see is the real mystery of the ascension. Christ is no longer present to us as another individual, even a supremely lovable and holy one. He's the life that floods the entire universe. I mean, I, I wonder how much. Uh, we've taken for granted these moments, especially in COVID. I mean, you you talk yeah. extensively in the, in your the, in this book of devotions about what we lose and what we long for, and I mean, just the the moments um, when it is harder for Christ to be present to us mm. and the other because we're on Zoom and on screens and and Facebook Live. I mean, is that mm. Mm. I, I mean, do you feel a more c- acute
1: sense of the presence of His absence? Yeah, that's a very good question because I think that sense of um, real openness to the mystery that's descending to us, that's embracing us, it does come more readily when we are in a particular environment with particular people and there's a rhythm and a kind of energy holding us and carrying us forward. And it's hard to capture that on Zoom. The other side of it though I found is there have been times that I've experienced worship on Zoom as kind of quieting me and focusing me more than I might otherwise have experienced. I've, you know, I've just got to look at the screen. I've got, to, I've got to give that my full individual attention. And somehow it connects. So I don't think it's all loss, but there is definitely a, um, a sense of exile, perhaps one might say, that a lot of people are sensing. And I wonder if for some people, some of the language of the Psalms comes alive in those moments. You know, I, my heart longs for the living God. When shall I come to appear before the presence of God? In Psalm 42, that sort of thing. I
0: mean, I wonder, some people argue that, you know, Augustine with work like the Confessions kind of creates the inner self, right? So now, now we can't think of a day without thinking about, well, here's my outer self that I, I present to the world, but then there's my inner self. Hmm. But now it seems like in the age of social media, we've got a third self, right? There's there, there's my inner self, there's my walking on the world self, and there's my avatar self, Yes. Yes. It's projected. It's it's a whole other reality. I wonder how much. Yeah. do 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 you see the avatar self becoming more real in the pandemic
1: as we're as we're bound up in social media and Zoom and things like yeah. this? You know, I I wondered about that early on in the pandemic period. But my my own sense, for what it's worth, is that actually what we see on screen isn't people's avatars. People still are connecting with each other in a in a human way, let's say, not a not a completely veiled or um, concealed way. If we were simply controlling pictures of ourselves on screen that were a bit more flattering than the ones we normally see, that would be you know that would be avatar stuff. But even when I was still working at the college last summer before I retired, when we had it seemed almost daily meetings with staff and colleagues, I did have a strong sense that it was them I was seeing that the yeah, they were bringing their, their histories, their, their concerns with them. So I wouldn't want to be too negative about that. I think there might be a danger if we ever thought that this simply replaced ordinary contact. If we so edited our on-screen presences and images that our own real selves, our own um, our own real faces were hidden, then I'd worry. But I don't know that there's been too much of that so many people have said though what a what a trial it is having to spend so much time each day looking at themselves on the screen and how how much they've learned about how little they like doing that It's interesting I was talking
0: with with a a person who's a member of a church here in the United States and they do a wonderful adult formation class on zoom and he actually said he thought the class discussions were better mm. on zoom because people speak their mind
1: more in the comfort of their home than they do in a, some kind of church classroom. There is something to that. And certainly the parish I used to work in a bit in Cambridge, the parish for which I wrote the book, in fact, um, I think they've come closer together than they ever have in this period simply because of a Zoom conversation after the Sunday morning service. Whereas before we would you know, we'd have a cup of coffee and a biscuit on the way out and chat to the people we knew, um, suddenly we're all there together on the screen in... Um, gallery formation. And I think new connections have been made that way. Is it strange to go from, I was
0: thinking, you know, you talk about this parish in the context of the book. Mm. I was wondering, as I was reading your book, I'm like, well, I wonder what it's like to go from being the Archbishop of Canterbury to going back to parish life and to going, you know, giving Lenten devotionals and and, mm. and, and and living a very different, I mean, mm. how, how is that transition? I mean, is it is it strange? Because, I mean, I'm sure when you're the archbishop you've got attendants and you've got this and there's this. i mean and mm-hmm. in, in, in some sense you like your life is not your own i'm sure mm-hmm. in a deep deep way mm-hmm. i mean what was the what's the transition like to go from yeah. this this position of 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 the highest authority really in in, in the anglican communion to hey I'm, I'm eating my biscuits and i'm giving my mm-hmm. latin
1: talks <laughs> absolutely wonderful absolutely wonderful <laughs> um no quite seriously um i i was used to find when i was archbishop that to keep myself sane I needed to be visiting parishes as often as I could. So I'd, I'd just ring up a parish in the Diocese of Canterbury and say, can I come for a Sunday morning? Not No, no special event. Just let me come and join you, um, preach, maybe just mix with the congregation, have lunch with you, that sort of thing. And if I'd had a week of really difficult national or international stuff, lots of committees, lots of... Um, horse trading and eel handling, as they say, Um, just to be on the front line with people in a local community whose lives were being slowly and perceptibly changed by the gospel and by each other, that was utterly, utterly life-giving. And so to be able to spend a bit more time with that was pure grace when I retired. What what was the hardest thing about being archbishop? Was Was there stuff that was just
0: that you dreaded, that was really challenging and difficult? I mean, what, 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 I'm sure there were things, I'm just curious what they
1: were. Mm. Well, I think all through my time, of course, we had the, the great divisions about sexuality that were tearing the church apart, and that never really went away. Um, but I think what I found most difficult was being in the spotlight of the media all the time. So that I used to say, you have to remember that you're always talking to everybody when you're in a position like that. So something you might say to one, one audience, which would be in a quite inappropriate register or tone for another audience. You know, you're giving an academic lecture, and you you use certain words, you go at a certain pace, and it's not what you'd say to a parish congregation. There's nothing, I think, dishonest about that. You do talk differently, but from the point of view of the media, it's all the same thing. And even, uh, well, I remember a rather hostile article as a result of something I'd written in the. Um, that's right. It was the Darcyson Newsletter for Canterbury. And I'd casually, casually commented in passing on a popular television program. And one of the newspapers then picked this up and said, oh, the archbishop's criticizing this popular television program. And another then comes in saying, what's the archbishop doing watching popular television programs anyway? And you think, oh, <laughs> give me strength. <laughs> that kind of thing was pretty wearing.
0: Is there the challenge? I know that in the United States, it's is my own context, it, it does seem that there are very few journalists that have a sophisticated understanding of religion, that oftentimes, mm. because we're an increasingly secular age, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: more and more, even even really good journalists, it's just, sure. they're just not, it, it, they're not fluent with, with the language, you know, mm. they're not, mm. you know, and and, they're, and and coverage often winds up
1: frustrating to religious people. Is that, mm. is there a similar phenomenon in the UK? Increasingly, I think. Most of the major daily newspapers, um, 15, 20 years ago, they would have a specialist religious correspondent. Some of them really sophisticated, well-instructed, um, often quite quirky people, but they had a very distinctive take on these things. More and more, it's been kind of franchised out to people who, who are doing other jobs for the paper, who have a kind of watching brief, but no great expertise. So that's that's a bit of an issue, certainly. And if you add to that the fact that our our news media generally, are working on a much more feverish kind of schedule. You've got to keep the stories coming. Then the first question anyone will ask if an archbishop or a politician, for that matter, gives a speech is, you know, what's the headline? What's the controversy? Who's going to hate this? And what's their phone number?
0: (laughs) You have a beautiful section in the book that I love. It's called The Problem with Statues. (laughs) yes. (laughs) It's just brilliant. I mean, it's wonderful. And you talk about um uh, the statue that is in um uh, the the chair of Canterbury Cathedral of Archbishop Henry um Chichel, I guess. Um, and you you talk about the thing about about statues is they're frozen mm-hmm. as opposed to stories mm-hmm. that can be told and retold. Yeah, and I I was thinking about something that I'd heard Jonathan Sachs say in an interview. He said that you know, in, in England, we don't have a lot of text on monuments. Like, they're just mm. for, you know, here is, you know, he says, in America, your statues, you have text and text and text, because you're always, you're a country of immigrants, and you always have to be retelling the story. Story, and yeah. We talked about Hamilton as a great example of retelling the story mm-hmm, with uh-huh. multicultural reality and hip-hop. And sure, it. yes. I, I wonder how how, is this the work of theology, you see, like, to to, to retell, to help the church rethink and retell the
1: story? Very much so, I think. And one of the things the church can do there is to say, it's okay to have a story that isn't um, monochrome. You don't have to have a story that's always about being successful or being right. And very often, that's a message which, if you like, the national political imagination finds very hard to take on board. But if we believe as Christians in, in grace, and if we believe as human beings in learning then it ought to be possible to look back on the story and say we can tell it with some of the things we'd rather not include because it's not the end of the world if we were wrong mm. and it's it's hard but i think absolutely essential so often wherever you look in the world today in politics there is this this insistence that we we always have to have been right and it's it's a very rare nation a very rare Society that's able really to say, you know, we got that wrong, and we're still here, and we can do something about that. I've told the story occasionally of an experience many years ago in um, in the Pacific, in the Solomon Islands, when I was visiting there about a year after their civil war, back in two thousand and three, I think. And I was on one of the islands, and celebrated Holy Communion on a football field for hundreds of people, and. um, the premier of the island came to me after that and said, you know, we've just come through the civil war and everybody on this island thinks it was the fault of the other island. And they think the same. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to stand up in front of you at the end of this service and I'm going to say, I want to acknowledge that we were responsible for that war as well. And I want you to give us all your blessing, your absolution. I thought we could do with a few more politicians in that mold. That's unbelievable. I was so moved by that.
0: Yeah, I was just going to ask, how did that feel? I mean, Mm. that's got to be, I I, I mean, that's a transparent,
1: vulnerable moment for somebody to say something like that. Yes, and somebody in that position of power. Yeah, I felt one of those times when you come away thinking, you know, this gospel thing really does work. I'm interested,
0: uh, you know, one of the things, I loved The Crown. I thought it was a really well done series on mm. netflix and and one of the things that comes across and i think really beautifully in that series is the role that faith played for the royal family i mean yeah. the queen and then later with prince philip i mean there was one episode where Gosh. he finds faith and it's, mm. i just i i find myself I'm mm. <laughs> thinking about yeah, it yeah um, mm. I'm, I'm wondering did you see um in your times, the Archbishop. I mean, what was what was it like to encounter um, the royal faithful? I mean, what, what mm, was mm. did you talk about faith with them? Did you? Um, I'm sure, yes. as the Archbishop, there were ceremonial roles, but I mean, how did did you have a kind of spiritual connection there with with the royal family?
1: Well, obviously, there are things that are not not to be talked about in public. There, but um, certainly, I, I had the privilege of seeing something of what what her faith meant to the Queen in particular. Um. And a sense of how, when she was preparing for her coronation, all those years ago, the then Archbishop wrote out for her a little book of prayers to say every day. And I know she's kept that ever since. And I know how much that book mattered and matters to her. And I think as time went on, she got less and less inhibited about talking about how much her faith mattered in her public pronouncements. And to very good and very powerful effect, certainly in the last year or so, in this country, she's been one of the very few public figures who's been able to, to speak somehow into the, into the heart of, of the country. And having, if I'm honest, having started out not being much of a monarchist, I just developed a, an enormous affection as well as respect for her. And I can also remember having um, spirited arguments once or twice with Prince Philip about the, the Greek New Testament, which he read in Greek what
0: did you argue about? I mean, what did he, he oh, <laughs> did just, you know, t- text criticism not, or what is?
1: <laughs> not, well, pretty much. You know, he, he he knew enough about the text and about textual scholarship to to ask really penetrating questions and have his own views on it. So yes, none of this was um, empty form for them. And I also think of you know Prince Charles's long-standing connection with a couple of the monasteries on Mount Athos, where he's been quite often to to spend time in quiet,
0: yeah. As as I watched as I watched uh, the Crown and thought about the royal family, it is interesting because in, in the United States, uh, so often these things are just politicized, Yeah. right? I mean, they're because you're running for election and you're trying to project. But I mean, the, the, there's a freedom, I guess, in in the monarchy where the head of state doesn't have to run for anything. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. Yeah, they don't have to prove anything. Mm. No. It, there's another section in your book that I I think is just beautiful where you reflect on c.s lewis's great book um until we have faces have i mean faces i remember when C.S. i was in college uh i was in a class and somebody brought in uh, the professor brought in the director of the c.s lewis society in dc mm-hmm. and somebody asked him in the class what was the most important book lewis ever wrote, mm-hmm. and he said without a doubt it's still we have faces yeah. yeah um i think i'd vote and, for that and, and you talk about um in the book and you talk about it, it's that you know you have this. Um, You know, you have the story of Psyche and and Eros and Mm -hmm. these mythical figures in the pursuit of each other and and this phrase that Lewis wanted to call the book Bareface, but this (laughs) unveiling. But you tie this beautifully to masks, right? Because we're Mm -hmm. walking around really globally Mm -hmm. with our face covered and it's just mm. and, and so much of how i relate to you and how you relate to me mm. even on a screen is i'm looking yeah. at your whole face to see when you're going to stop talking and start talking and Sorry. when you're going to you know when you're going to change topic or something like so and we walk around without that mm. right and, mm. and but but you talk about that maybe there's
1: a bare-faced form to all this something about that i think it means we have to attend to to people's whole bodies we have to attend to their eyes we have to we have to learn to, to look and listen in a new way, and and perhaps to be, in that sense, more exposed than less exposed. It was just a paradox that crossed my mind thinking about the experience of speaking to people wearing masks. It's a, it's a complicated thing, isn't it? And it it related. I can't remember if I mentioned this, but it related to my experience of lecturing once or twice to conservative Islamic audiences with yeah, you veiled, mentioned that in the book. And heavily veiled women in the audience and after a bit learning a little bit what the body language and the eyes were saying um, so that I didn't feel it was a, a total barrier but it's, as I say, it's a, it's a complicated one but it's, it's such a wonderful book, I think and, and the idea that, you know, we can't we can't actually meet God face to face until we have faces, until we've grown into our grown unself-consciously into who we are, you might say not the thing, not the face we craft and control and manage but the face we really literally inhabit
0: it, it is part of what I mean, I suppose a pandemic exposes what's always true. We control like nothing in this life, right? We, <laughs> we, we have so little control. And yet in late modernity, so much of our normal sense of being in the world is the sense that everything is under control. That's right.
1: The expectations are high. Yeah. And, and so it it doesn't do us any harm just to be reminded from time to time that however high the expectations they can never be consistently met i've sometimes said one of the most important spiritual things that happens to any of us is getting wet when it rains because you know there's absolutely nothing we can do about that and no amount of planning and strategic management and careful protective devices can actually stop us getting wet when we go outside in the rain it happens it's a world that we don't we don't own and maybe that's one of the beginnings of wisdom here a world we don't own.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess part, part of like being a creature, I guess being a happy creature, I guess, is you learn how, you have to learn how to love your limits, right? Exactly <laughs> and, so, exactly so. Mm. And, and I guess a pandemic will, will teach you
1: pretty quickly your limitations as a creature. I hope so, yes. And and to learn that those limits are not a kind of insult or a problem that has to be overcome. They are, they are you, they are your identity. And you might say it's easy for me to say that as a reasonably able-bodied person. What about the person for whom, you know, their bodiliness is a matter of pain and limitation and struggle? Yes, I know, but even for such people, the ones who seem to deal with it without kind of corrosive resentment and unhappiness are the ones who say, Well, this is where I start from. It's not where I'd like to be, it's not where I'd like to end up. But I know this is where I start from here and now. I was thinking in, in conversation with that
0: with Limitations. You have a great meditation in the book about idolatry, and, ah, and, yes. and you talk about quoting the, the Book of First John in the New Testament about fleeing from idols. And uh, it, it's interesting because we, I think, for the average sort of uh, late modern, sophisticated person, that seems so superstitious or something that we'd be, you know, worshiping little statues or something like mm, that. But we mm. were talking about something much more real here, right? Just taking created reality and, and deifying it and making it That's transcendent right. in, in the
1: Creator. That's right. And there are all kinds of levels at which we do this. I mentioned in that little piece the projections that we we throw at our political leaders sometimes, and the idolatries of power and success that go with that. There are the, the images that we set up of ourselves, the ideal self we want to be and want others to see, and know we're not. There are the idols and images of like the symbols of success and power that we like to surround ourselves with, the messages we want to give. It's everywhere. Idolatry is everywhere. And I think that that is why those words in the first letter of John are so powerful. Keep yourselves from idols because the idol doesn't liberate. That's the bottom line. The idol can't liberate because the idol comes from you. You've made it. It's all there in, in the prophets, in Jeremiah and Isaiah, um, talking about why the idol can't save, it's because you made it. You know, you've put into it what's there. And as they say in um, computer land, rubbish in, rubbish out, garbage in, garbage out. You know, if you if you look to the idol you've made to liberate you or save you or transform you, you've got a long wait coming. But
0: that, but isn't that the promise of idols? They, they promise liberation. Yeah. The reason we make them, yeah. And the reason they captivate our imagination is because they do seem to offer us some
1: form of, albeit false liberation, they do make an offer and a promise. That's right. That's right. And the challenge then is to recognize how far that offer and that promise is really just an amplified echo of what we want to hear. And what God does, the true God, is something completely different from that amplified echo. It's the word we never have imagined and never, have never heard before and just comes fresh and so liberates.
0: I'm curious, you say, you, you talked just a second ago about the, the true God. I, I'm always, I've been intrigued following your life from afar in books and just, you know, media and things. Um, and I often think that you, you have people that are very committed to the particularity of their own religious tradition, hmm. and yet not so interested in dialogue and friendship hmm. across faith traditions. Then you have people that are often very good at interfaith connections, but some of it seems to be at the sp- at the expense of of a of, a, of a ability to really speak fluently on their own. Mm, but mm. you you strike me as someone who lives in both worlds—that you're a very particular theologically and spiritually committed mm. Christian—and yet you've had these remarkable friendships, um, interfaith friendships, mm. that, that with people like Jonathan Sachs and other Indeed, people. Indeed. Yes. How, how do you how do you hold all those together in your own soul?
1: It's a good question, but um, I'm. I'm I'm very happy if you know if that's the impression, because i I, I want to be what I am, which is a Christian, um, and a rather old-fashioned kind of Christian. But as such, I believe that the God I encounter as a Christian is the God who is waiting in every every setting, every face, every word. And I used to say sometimes about interfaith meetings that what really mattered was that in a really good interfaith meeting, you'll see another person's face turned towards God if you can sit in on one of their acts of worship. And I think that's what many of my friends would say the other way around as well. I'm thinking of two, two very good Muslim friends of mine um, who have attended Christian worship in that context of interfaith encounter, both of them saying they came so that they would understand better what, what we looked like when we were in touch with, with God. And I I find that very, very moving. I I sort of know what it is from the other side, and and that's the level at which we meet. None of us has the job of, if you like, climbing some um, imagined mountain to get the view of how all the faiths connect, relate, and get sort of marked out of ten. No, Um, we, we walk the path we walk on confident that what we are saying is, at the end of the day, the more comprehensive, the more adequate way of relating to God. And yet, it's always being challenged and addressed, informed and modified by others on other paths. I'm not a relativist. I believe God is the Christian God. But that Christian God is, as I say, free to go all over the place and turn up everywhere, turn up in faces, languages, practices that seem very strange to me. And I can only acclaim greet what I encounter there. There's a story. It's probably apocryphal, but it's about Billy
0: Graham where he was in China or something and he saw this Buddhist monk and, of course, he evangelizes him and then mm. he comes down from a meeting with other monks and allegedly the monk ran up and said, Dr. Graham, Dr. Graham, thank you. This one you've told me about, Jesus, I've known him my whole life, but I never knew his name. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's, that's I think, a, a very beautiful encapsulation of what a lot of people actually do sense about what's going on in interfaith encounter. And it's not that you can you can guarantee such an outcome. It's not that you can program that in. You have to let God be God in that encounter, and and be patient.
0: Well, one of the things I really enjoyed about your book is you're you know that all, all theology, right, is is contextual, right? It all comes from the story we're in and the challenges we're facing, and and you really grapple with what the biblical text and what the Christian story tells us in the midst of a pandemic. I, I'm curious, as you think down the road, as someone who's committed your your life, vocationally, you've been somebody who's helped tell the Christian story and, and reflect critically upon it. What do you What do you think are the big theological challenges or issues or things that the church, the Christian church, will grapple with in the coming decades? What do you think will be the the big things in the story to be rethought mm. And, mm. and 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 wrestled with as, yeah. as you sit from where you
1: from where you've been? Hmm. Big question again. I see no way in which we could avoid thinking harder and more deeply about the gospel and our environment, our material environment, and that's not just a kind of fashionable flash in the pan um, ecology thing, not just um, superficial greening of the theological agenda. I think it really has to do with the fact that we we've got to face the reality that the way we've talked about our humanity as religious people in the West has played a part in the crisis, the environmental crisis we now face. We've got to do some hard thinking there. And certainly for my children's generation, that's that's what they're looking for. Insofar as they do look to the church or religious bodies for anything, I've found there's a very strong push there to hear what the voice of faith has to say. And some very moving encounters I've had in the last couple of years have been with um, young people, sometimes very young people, in in. Elementary and high schools who have these concerns and really want to know. So, you know, what does what does the religious life have to do with with this? So that's one thing. Second thing is we need to go on thinking very hard about how we marry the language of the gospel to the prevailing discourse, even the prevailing mythology around human rights. We live in a culture which is really penetrated by the language of rights, and for all all sorts of very good reasons, because of tyrannous, repressive practices and cultures in the past. But how do you get from a focus on rights, claims, enforceable claims, from that to a real mutuality, a real sense of interdependence? I've just been looking at um, the new book by Robert Putnam, one of his associates called Upswing, which charts American culture over the last century saying there's a movement from I to we and then back to I again. And basically he's saying time to do a bit of a swing towards we again. But in a rights-obsessed culture, that's quite hard work because it's not about denying or rolling back human rights. It's about saying, well, where do they come from? Where do they really belong? And Of course, historically, the language of human rights has its roots in a strongly Christian and Judeo-Christian perspective on the political world. So I think there's work to be done there. And that's an area that I'm I'm very fascinated with. And then, of course, the third thing is the inescapable job of thinking and praying very hard about human sexuality, which is now such a confused, such a sort of um, intensely conflict-ridden area of thought within the churches at a time when a lot of society seems to have moved on. Does the fact that society's moved on mean we have to change our minds? Well, not automatically but it does mean we've got to do a lot of harder work on what we have to say and where we're coming from. And it's not unconnected with that issues, issue that we touched on earlier about our understanding of bodiliness, embodiedness, and what all that means. So lots of work still to do there. I don't see any solutions emerging in a hurry, and there may be quite a bit more conflict down the road. I, I do feel sympathy for my successor on that. Rowan, thank you so much.
0: Uh, you've written a great book, Candles in the Dark. Thank you. Um, thank you. Faith, Hope, and Love in a Time of Pandemic. Thanks for writing it, and thanking. thank you for being gracious and spending some time talking about it. I really enjoyed it.
1: It's been a real pleasure, Scott. Thank you so much. Thank you for asking me.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media, share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.